Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Who's this episode brought to us by? It is brought to you by Miniflix, the premier streaming site for award-winning short films. Miniflix acquires short films that have premiered at Cannes, Sundance, TIFF, that's the Toronto International Film Festival, David, uh, and many more, meaning that you can see great short films available nowhere else online. Miniflix also offers several Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning short films unavailable on typical free video uh, platforms. So this week's movie that they recommend is Poi Dogs, P-O-I, the story of two local Hawaii, uh, Hawaiian teenagers and their awkward attempts at expressing a budding romantic interest in each other. Shot on location, this loving tribute to Hawaii and its people is heartfelt without ever ringing false or overly sentimental. Poi Dogs is the winner of 10 major festival awards, including the Grand Jury Prize at the Washington, D.C. Independent Film Festival, as well as a 2015 addition to the Permanent Films Collection at the Smithsonian Institute's National Museum of the American Indian. So uh, that is, of course, Poi Dogs, <clears throat> but new films are being added every month uh, and you can watch these incredible award-winning short films anytime, anywhere on any streaming device for only three ninety-nine a month or as a Battleship Pretension listener you can get a free 30-day trial of commercial-free award-winning short films just go to the page for this week's movie journal and click on the Miniflix banner at the bottom to redeem the special offer or you can go to miniflix.tv slash battleship alright uh, let's talk about some movies that we watched alright uh, I watched and was really pleasantly surprised by the new uh, remake of Superfly. Okay. Director, do you know the director? Oh, it's like a it's like a symbol or it's something. It's a really like. stupid thing. Okay, what is His it? His name is Director X. Yeah. And it's not just it's Director X period. He's mm-hmm. got a period at the end of the X for I don't know. And also like I wonder if I guess if you're going to call yourself that, why not just go all in and include punctua- punctuation? Yeah. Um, but I wonder because this guy this is his first feature but he's been making music videos including many many music videos you've probably seen and heard of um, well most people have you probably haven't (laughs) for like 20 years so I wonder if this at this point he's like a middle aged guy who's like yeah stuck with this name like i guess it's gotten me this far i guess i'm still what if it's director like, x what if it's like gary ross <laughs> but uh it's like a richard bachman situation um but whenever i think of a director with like a name like that i think of one of the greatest things to have ever happened to humanity which is the leaking of the christian bale meltdown <laughs> on the set of terminal's terminal salvation it's been and a while since goes, you brought this up oh I, I love it i i i love it so much uh but one of the funniest part every part of that is hilarious yeah. and also christian bale is right about everything um uh but the best part or one of the funniest parts to me is when christian bale in the middle of his angry tirade says mcgee do you got anything to fucking say to this guy <laughs> <laughs> it does it does kind of, I feel like it undercuts anything you're saying yeah. if you refer to him by his name. Yeah. McGee. <laughs> um, yeah. And I also always like kind of lost respect for McGee for like, I don't know. There's a, to me, there's a certain sense of being like the, the leader when you're a director on yeah. set. Right. And like, I, I, I feel like him just like being cowed by Christian Bale made me, kind of lose respect for him a little bit mm. i mean i guess i do too but at the same time yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> we have Sorry. a bug problem in the studio yeah so here's what's been happening my uh wonderful wife uh has decided to go vegan 
Uh, oh, okay. I didn't, yeah. And so she's been buying a lot of fruit, which means a lot of fruit flies, because she's also trying to figure out uh, the right pace at which to eat that fruit before it goes bad. Yeah, and it sounds so, like she's buying too much fruit at once. Maybe. Probably, yes. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so, yeah, we wind up with fruit flies all over the house. So occasionally you will hear a single solitary clap, and that and will be... murdering another yes. fruit fly. So anyway. Uh, anyway, um, so... McG- but yeah, no, uh, I mean, I guess on one sen- uh, on one hand I could see that, but at the same time, like, it, you have something of a diva actor who is yelling and screaming, like, I don't know, it's, I feel like most directors, yeah. in an attempt to, like, keep things calm, would not, like, yell over the actor, because that would only agitate them further, I think. Um, yeah, but I don't know. I mean, I I know. Chris I realize I just like, spoke about an actor as though he were an animal. Yeah, um, uh, and I know Christopher has like method and stuff. So yeah, it's pretty pretty dumb. When you're in character as um, John Connor, oh, and that, oh, that's the other, one of the other funniest parts about that thing is him trying to hold on to his American accent. Yeah, and but occasionally, occasionally the Welsh coming out. It's yeah. so great. But I don't know if Christian Bale has a reputation of being a diva. Oh, I just mean in general, like okay. actors, like because again, actors. Christian Bale is right about yeah. the DP walking around during a take in his line of sight. Uh, it's, it's very unprofessional. I'm sorry, I, I, I characterized it as walking around um, instead of how it actually happened, right. walking around, ah, da, 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 da. Yeah, <laughs> which admittedly, you know what, I will agree, uh, if a crew member is walking around just making noises like ah, that, da, da, da. they really should not be on set, I think. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Almost 10 years old. I know. All right. um, But back to Superfly. Yeah, I really didn't know what to expect, or I I really didn't expect it to be uh, this this good. I mean, it's it's kind of, it's very much a 2018, like, version of a blaxploitation movie. It has the stuff you want from the blaxploitation genre in terms of the... uh, the cool characters and the, uh, and everyone is sexy and yeah. everyone's dressed, uh, to the nines and there's some, some violence. Um, and also there's some, uh, what we would now categorize as wokeness, you know, okay. the, you know, a lot of the best black exploitation movies were, um, you know, uh, were woke while also somehow being problematic at the same, yeah, at time. The same time. But like, <laughs> I mean, a lot of them are specifically about like the man. Yeah. Uh, and this one I would say is a little bit more nuanced than that. Uh, but, um, it still does have your white corrupt cops, Mm -hmm. which the original has. Um, uh, uh, although they're not the main bad guy anymore. They're one of the bad guys. Uh, but then you've also got things, um, uh, there's a there's really there's like a, a almost a satirical bent to some of this stuff. Like there's one part where they're um, in a uh, a bad part of Mexico because they're meeting with a drug dealer and like the priest is the the main guy's name. Hmm. Uh, uh, his right hand man played by Jason Mitchell. Um, oh from, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mudbound and right. Uh, Straight out of Compton, right? Yes. Um, he's like waiting in the car and he's in a bad neighborhood. And, and like, as people walk by, like he reaches over and locks the doors and the idea of a black man yeah. being scared in a, in a neighborhood, like that's an intentionally tongue in cheek type yeah. type of thing that I thought was really smart. There's also, I won't give away exactly what it is, but there's a much more, uh, timely, more relevant, uh, <laughs> a more timely reference. Um, that is 
not hung a lantern on at all, um, unless you're paying attention to it, but a reference to Confederate statues. Oh, um, because the movie takes place in Atlanta as opposed to New oh, York. Okay. Uh, that's partially because that's kind of like, uh, the, you know, the, the hip hop scene, right. No. In, you know, in the 2010s and it's cheaper the, to shoot there. The, the South. Yeah, that's true. But also just that, you know, the South, uh, is such a hotbed, you know, yeah. Atlanta and Houston, yeah. uh, and places like that. Um, uh, yeah. So the movie's very cool. Um, it's got some good action, but I wouldn't go as far. Like it has action, like sequences that are definitely action sequences, but I wouldn't go as far as to call it an action movie because most of it is like a, a crime drama yeah. about a, a, a drug dealer who is like not at the top of the game because he, that's his deal. Right. He's never tried to be. He's like yeah. the reason he stayed in the game so long is because he's, been willing to leave money on the table to keep his exposure down yeah. but now he's like ready to retire so he's like yeah. he's oh, gonna make his fortune by and by uh <laughs> right yeah oh pushman is yeah uh in the movie don't okay, worry good um good. yeah uh there's a, uh, another thing i want to point out <laughs> Uh, again, throwback to the seventies. There's a real, real steamy three-way sex scene. Nice. Um, that, uh, all guys, uh, <laughs> I have to assume. <laughs> that was, oh man, I would have loved that. Um, <laughs> but no, at the end of the set, it's in a shower at the end. It's like priest is sitting there and the ladies are like <laughs> ones that like laying on each, each shoulder and the woman behind me or no, the woman or the guy like down the road to me just started clapping at the end of the sex scene. <laughs> and the one behind me was like, I'm not cheering that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Uh, I do. I, I do think that like, <clears throat> I mean this, the original Superfly. I do think that it's admittedly. Okay. So I've probably seen like maybe seven or eight of uh, like the big like black exploitation movies. Like uh, in high school, I was it was a, an odd preoccupation, uh, partially because in uh, as part of the TV video uh, department, I made something called Glock Renegade Cop, uh-huh. which uh, there were no black people in my school, but uh, I still wanted to evoke that because right. I was big, I was big into 1970s funk and I wanted to do that anyway. The point is, uh, so I watched you know. Uh, Foxy Brown and of course Shaft uh, I did not see Shaft in Africa you know the brother man and the motherland uh-huh. um, I didn't see that but uh, and what were the other ones I didn't see Dolomite I think I saw the Mac I think I saw Truck Turner that's Isaac Hayes right? that's Isaac Hayes yeah uh, now I don't remember yeah, the others, but I watched several. But anyway, um, Superfly is the best of the bunch. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. And and I do. I've think, never seen it. I just know. Oh, it's marvelous. Know the story. But I, I do of those like black exploitation. I've only seen Shaft and Sweet Sweetback. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is more of an art house black exploitation yes. movie. Uh, what I will say is though, though, is that like. A, I think a big reason why the original Super, Superfly is remembered is the soundtrack like that Curtis Mayfield soundtrack is amazing like how mm. much of that uh, you said Pusher Man works its way in Pusher Man is in it but no this this one has a soundtrack by Future who's a you wouldn't know who he is right. but he's a, a very good a very hip current okay. rapper okay uh, and it is good music and so I guess that that is something they're doing uh, in the tradition of the original is having yeah. the soundtrack entirely done uh, pretty much entirely done there's right. you know some music that comes by one in, like artist Man, who's not but, primarily a composer uh, uh film right. composer yeah okay yeah. all right uh yeah uh here's another thing I, I don't know if this is 
Um, I feel almost uncomfortable bringing this up, but I did have this thought because you and I were talking recently in the movie journal about like um, studios like giving you free popcorn in the case of Snatched giving you wine, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, To set the mood or whatever. Okay. They didn't give us anything, but this was the first time I've ever been to a press screening at the... um, uh, the the Cinemark at the Howard Hughes, the Promenade at Howard Hughes. Oh, okay, yeah. I've never been there. Uh, I hadn't been to see a movie there since the last Harry Potter, which was, what, seven years ago? That was a while ago. Um, but in any case, just as far as area of Los Angeles, you know, I'm, I ended up seeing Superfly with an almost entirely black audience, which was, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that's fantastic. But I did, the conspiracy theorist in me did be like, are they trying to, like make me like the movie more by uh, putting me in the audience it's meant for. And is that necessarily a bad thing? Well, it's not uncommon. I mean, like there's a reason that there's always a plus one for kids movies and it's right. so that people would bring their kids so that you can hear what the intended audience, because the intended audience, despite you and I being males, uh, age 18 to what is it? 40 or maybe 35. Maybe we're out. Um, yeah, I think 18 to 34 is the demographic. Oh, boy. All right. Well, I'm 35. Okay, so yeah, they're not making them for us anymore. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, and so like when I saw Think Like a Man, uh-huh. I'll say this. This is what was uncomfortable, was that it was open to the public, uh, but also a critic screening. Yeah, this um, is uh, for those, yeah, some behind the scenes for those. So a lot of the times for big studio movies, mm-hmm. the press who are higher on the ladder than we are get to see it a week or two early. Sure. We will get to go to what's called an all media screening in which there's a certain amount of seats set aside for press. Yeah. But the rest of them are like things that give away to the public. You, right. you win a contest or sometimes it's people who work at the studio who get to bring their family or whatever. Right. You get a, uh, a whole panoply, I guess of different, uh, non-critic people. Yeah. Um, and it's, this is, this only happens for, big studio movies. Yeah. We're seeing independent movies. We're seeing them earlier and yeah. in, a, in a critics only audience. Yeah. Uh, but the, there will be a reserved part of the theater that is for the critics. That's the p- people that are, that is for the people that are there. <laughs> you see where I'm headed. Uh, you know, in an official capacity, <laughs> you, you told me, I've told you this. Story. You might have told, said it in the air before. So, uh, so when I went, but that's the other thing is they also just trust critics more because you're there in an official capacity. So as I was going to see Think Like a Man, there were basically two lines, a black line and a white line. At the black line, they were saying, you need to leave your phone. At the white line, they're saying, go on in. <laughs> and it's like, this oh, is very wow. uncomfortable. And then, yeah. I wa- and then I walked, I was a little bit late, so the theater was already pretty full. But I walk in, and it's literally just, there is a square in the middle clearly like the best seats uh-huh. there's a square in the middle and it's all white people and everybody else is black and i was like wow this is wow. very uncomfortable now if you'll excuse me i'm gonna go take my good seat uh, <laughs> while i play on my phone before the movie starts um well this speaks we're not going to get into it uh really but something we were talking about off mic that's relevant in in uh, on in the film twitter world today mm-hmm. uh, literally today today we're recording the discussion about uh diversity among film critics mm-hmm. so uh i would say that 
that your experience there speaks to that. Very much so. <laughs> you know? Very much so. Um, anyway, so yeah, Superfly, uh, check it out. It's it's cool. It's a cool movie. And I'm excited guy, to see it now. This guy, Trevor Jackson, I think, is the stars. I don't know anything hmm. uh, uh, about him, but you've also got um, uh, Michael K. Williams shows up. Uh, Jennifer Morrison, um, who's, uh, I think, mostly a TV person. Her name sounds familiar. Um and then you've got uh, a cameo from Rick Ross and a sort of extended cameo slash small role from uh, Big Boy from uh, from Outcast. Um, oh, Jennifer Morrison. Okay, she's on House. Uh, okay, she was on How I Met Your Mother for a while, which we were ta- also talking about off mic. We had a long conversation off mic. Mm-hmm. We really got off down, really <laughs> off on a tangent that day, like uh, like the critic Jay Sherman. Um, and then, uh, oh yeah, there was uh, there's. There's one joke that I do kind of want to, but Michael K. Williams makes fun of Priest's uh, hair, because I don't know if you've seen the picture. He has, like, straightened, like, kind of shortish, but straightened hair. Okay, like and, like the character from uh, the, the original film. Um, is his short, though, in the original it's film? It's not short, but it's definitely, it's straightened very much yeah. so. Uh, and so Michael K. Williams makes a reference to, like, uh, with your uh, with your Morris Day-ass hair, and, <laughs> and, and Priest being the young, you know, being... 2018 Superfly, he goes, excuse me, who the fuck is Morris Day? <laughs> <laughs> and that got a big laugh from the audience. That's so fun. I enjoyed that. Uh, all right. Next up for me, couldn't be more different. I watched a movie from 1991 that is uh, um, out on Blu-ray this week, I think. Uh, I'll have a review up soon once I uh, catch up uh, out from film movement. Uh, Derek Jarman's version of Edward II, the Christopher okay. Marlowe play. Okay. And this movie, Tyler, is incredible okay um and also like made me realize uh some of the stuff that i that maybe young me thought was so revolutionary about julie Taymor's version of titus hmm. uh <laughs> derek jarman had gotten to uh at that point you know 10 years uh well i guess not quite 10 years uh beforehand because this is a a, a movie it, um i can't edward the second his reign was like uh was it early 1300s i think um but this just takes place in sort of big castle like rooms that are uh, like clearly sound stages yeah um they dress in suits and ties like 20th century suits and ties the his son uh, edward the third um plays with like toy guns and hmm. uh it it definitely has that whole uh the thing that titus had of blending like uh, yeah, there's the picture okay, of, yeah. of him uh, with the toy gun in his hand. Um, and, uh, um, but uh, the other thing, Derek Jarman, if you know his work, you won't be surprised that he really uh, focuses on the uh, gay subtext. It's not even really subtext mm-hmm. of this work and of the real <laughs> true relationship between um, Edward II and his uh, I guess best friend uh, Gaveston, um, uh, which is all a real thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I looked it up and read the whole story. Um, that basically went that Edward the Second was like had this friend, and then uh, Edward the Second's dad, Edward the First, died, uh, and he was like, "Okay, I'm king now." And guess what? My best friend is like a super high ranking whatever, and everyone hated him, and so the entire court was plotting against. Uh, Edward II and Gaveston uh, trying to get him uh, mm. exiled and or killed. Um, they may succeed at both eventually. Mm. <laughs> um, Spoilers. <laughs> yeah. Um, again, it's all on Wikipedia. You can read the history of Edward yeah. II. Um, 
but uh, I think uh, Derek Jarman mostly uh, in terms of the language sticks to Christopher Marlowe's script, but then tosses in some anachronisms like, you know, shortening a monologue to just fuck off or fuck him. (laughs) Um, uh, And, and, he in no way tries to make the movie seem realistic. This is clearly uh, hyper like expressionistic theatrical art piece. It takes Ooh. place in big empty rooms. There's dance numbers. Um, uh, people dress, you know, in all sorts of different uh, different ways. But um, uh, and also, it's uh, real, real gay. Uh, okay, <laughs> and I mean, I mean that as a to recommend the film. Sure, it's a it's a a, a wonderful. There was a an article and I can't remember where it ran recently. Um, and it was written by a gay film critic who was talking about, um, how on the one hand we seem to have, like there are more, like he was talking about things about like love Simon and that there are, it's great that there's more, um, gay characters in American movies, Mm. uh, these days. But he said, it also seems like the, queerness of the characters is conforming to the conventions of Hollywood as opposed to in the nineties and the earlier, like fucked up, you know, um, uh, uh, what's the, uh, what's the guy you hate? Greg Araki days of the nineties, like queer cinema wasn't just about, it wasn't just queer because it was about queer people. It was like an entirely different way of looking at cinema. It was, it was every definition of the (laughs) word queer. Um, and, um, uh, I definitely thought about that while watching Edward the second is like, this is not a movie that's trying to, uh, make Edward the second's homosexual relationship. Yeah. Palatable to an audience who's used to historical dramas. This is a gay as fuck take on Edward the second. And I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I really got into it. You know, it kind of makes you wonder, there's something that we've said before in, in other ways that like, <clears throat> You know, when when an independent filmmaker or an international filmmaker is brought into Hollywood to to do something with a budget behind it, uh-huh. something that we tend to think is, oh, no, <laughs> no. And in that same way, like the entire the entirety of like queer cinema, not that it's any kind of huge mainstream acceptance, but like something like Love, Simon, Simon made a fair amount of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from what I hear was actually kind of milquetoast in a lot of ways. And unsurprisingly on one hand yes of course you want something to get more exposure uh, especially if it's something with like a social push behind it but at the same time like oh man this isn't this isn't what i wanted <laughs> at all yeah but i still hear love simon is very good yeah i, I do want i do want to see it and i think we should have room for both and i think that's sure. what this guy was saying uh, is that movies like you know carol's a great movie but we don't want right. to we don't want to no longer at least he feels, and I tend to agree with him, that uh, I don't want to give up the Derek Jarman and the Greg Araki right. movies. Yeah. Um, uh, Not that, you know. but here's like, what does it say that, about you and I that we look at Carol and they're like, oh, look at this mainstream claptrap? Oh, right. I know we don't actually I mean, no, think that yeah, way. It was but, my favorite movie that year, I think. Um, hang on. I think so. It was up there. I don't remember exactly. But um, oh, I'm going to have to look it up. Yeah, that was 2016 or 2015. That was 15, and now I don't remember what my favorite one was in was in 15. Damn. Oh, mine was Brooklyn. Uh, years, years might have been Carol. Now I don't recall. But anyway, um, 
but yeah, it's just that like, oh, wait, was that the year? Or was the nightmare was my favorite? Oh, the nightmare was your favorite. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting, it's interesting that this movie that really in many ways is not conventional at all in the way it's made the period it takes place, the story mm-hmm. that it's telling. And yet you and I are just like, well, yeah, I'd like it to be a little weirder. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So anyway. yeah, I, yeah, I, I definitely, um, you know, as a, my, my version of Quentin Tarantino's like, uh, video store film school while I was sure. actually going to film school. Yeah. But you know, in the early two thousands there, especially in Chicago, especially working at a video store mm-hmm. that was practically in the, in boys town. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I spent a lot of time renting nineties queer movies and yeah. really liked a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I hope that, yeah, I hope we still get stuff like that going forward. Yeah. Even at my blockbuster, uh, in Chicago, there was a section that said like celebrate diversity, uh-huh. but it was in like rainbow colors. Uh-huh. And I was just like, okay, so I, it's pretty clear the diversity you're talking about here. Um, <laughs> yeah. and sure enough. Yeah. It was basically just the gay section, but it didn't, it didn't say that. Um, so Carol was actually my number four. Okay. Nightmare. Number one, number two, the assassin, which I was literally right. just yesterday thinking I should rewatch. Okay. Cause I have the blue right. I haven't watched it since I got it. Uh, and the number three was Chirac. So that's right about again recently because of spike lee's new movie that made such a splash splash at can yes black black clansman mm-hmm. anyway uh, i think of, it's a lot turn. of k's in there yeah it's exhausting yeah um all right so uh yeah i saw brad bird's incredibles 2 and it's very 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 good <laughs> occasionally great one could even say it's great in general. If you read my review, I'm not super thrilled with my review because I spend so much time talking about the original film. But I think the movie invites it. The sequel takes place seconds after the first one ends. It literally starts with the underminer showing up and they have to fight him, you know? And so it's like, okay, well you're now, if this took place 14 years after the original, it forces me to think in those terms to think that, yeah, things change, life changes, tones change in, in, in a person's life. But by doing that, it is seen as, as in my mind, as a full extension of the original, which means, all right, that means that I have to now hold it to that standard. Okay. And it falls short. Um, I think that it, I think the character arcs, it's not even so much that I think they're bad. They're, they're really good. And then they just kind of, evaporate they don't really it's not that they end in a place i don't like they just don't end they don't go they don't really happen Mm -hmm. after a while it's very strange and not at all what i've come to expect from brad bird uh as a storyteller Mm -hmm. um thematically it's doing some interesting things specifically uh further exploring the idea of greatness and glory and like what greatness can mean and what heroism can mean, you know, um, as, as Mr. Incredible, like takes over the role of like the, the domestic, um, and Elastigirl is now the, the, like the, the face of superhero uh, partially because she doesn't cause quite as much, uh, collateral damage as he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's like, okay, that's, that's not bad. Those, but it, it, I feel like it's just not, it doesn't explore things quite as, it doesn't explore as deep of subjects as the first one, and it doesn't explore them as deeply. Hmm. Um, and then there are entire sequences that, while 
breathtaking and entertaining and delightful don't really contribute much to the story. Like you could remove them and you Mm. wouldn't feel it. Uh, but, and I feel bad being negative. Like it's a solid movie. I absolutely recommend it. You will enjoy yourself, but it, it, I wouldn't say it full on pales in comparison to the first, but it definitely, it's a shame. Uh, but at the same time, it's hard to beat. That first one is great. Yeah. And what I, I do say, in, yeah, oh, absolutely. And I, and I recommend it. I think you would like it, but I'm try. I guess more than anything, I try to, I'm trying to temper people's expectations. Um, what I will say is that if this film in its, in its current form, like completely unchanged, if it had come out four years after the movie, I think I'd be more okay with it, but I think there's, I think I can't divorce that it's been 14 years since the original film and like any, any sequel that takes 14 years to get going. I feel like there's going to be a certain high expectation for it and a certain degree of like, all right, they're back, you know, whereas if it were two or three years later, it's like, Oh, Oh great. A sequel fun. But now it's like a big return and the film that exists is not a big return. It's just a, Oh, a sequel fun. Um, plus they the, they do a thing where like the villain that exists, uh, the, the villain that emerges is really interesting and fun. And I, I like him a lot and you don't exactly know the, uh, the identity except of course you do the moment. I mean, anybody over the age of, I'm going to say nine is going to be like, <laughs> clearly, clearly it's this person. Um, and they even try to do a red herring to which I thought like, Oh, that's cute. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so it's, but, that, but you know what, what I will, I will say positively, like if they actually made another one, if they made an Incredibles three in the, which they could in the next few years, then I feel like this one would be somehow more acceptable because now it's just one more in a series. Mm-hmm. But if this is the only one that it exists, then it's like, Oh, all right. you've got the really great one and the okay and the very good one. Um, but if it's just, if it kicks off a series of Incredibles movies, I think I'll be more forgiving of it. Oddly enough. Um, what would you, what do you bet that if they make an Incredibles three, it's, Incredibles. Oh, oh. it's <laughs> right. I think they start with that and then just work their way out. I think they made the second one solely so they could do that with the third one. Um, um, but, but that's, I'll say this, like Brad birds has such a clear idea of the world. You know, it, it looks like the future as imagined in the 1950s. He does a great job with that. And it's so much fun. Not unlike the tick, or even mystery men a little bit. Um, it's fun when somebody is operating in the superhero world, but still with kind of a winking cleverness to it. Um, like the villain, his name is the screen slaver <laughs> where he uses like a, a, the screens that dominate our lives to like hypnotize people. Uh-huh. And it's like, that's great. And then there's a, a hero who, um, who like can, uh, like, shoot lava out of his mouth and his name is reflux. And it's like, (laughs) it's like that level of cleverness that I just enjoy. And so it's still, I I still found myself smiling for a good portion of the film and it is, it is a lot of fun. I I absolutely recommend it, but just don't expect it to be the first film, which I think is almost a transcending transcendent experience. All right. Um, now I've got two rewatches, which I normally, I, I, don't bother to talk about rewatches mm-hmm. in the movie journal unless I 
uh, feel like I have something to say. Case in point, I also rewatched John Wick this week, but I'm always rewatching John Wick. I don't yeah. Really <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, I rewatched for the first time in um, probably over 10 years, um, 1938's The Adventures of Robin Hood. Oh, all right. He's a uh, film with, with Errol Flynn. And I think um, uh, what I really focused on this time is, uh, yeah, Michael Curtiz is, is great, and mm-hmm. the movie really moves. Um, but I really think this movie is a, a case study in star power, not just Errol Flynn, mm-hmm. but you've also got Olivia de Havilland mm-hmm. and Basil Rathbone and um, uh, Alan Claude Hale. Rain. Yeah, Claude Rains. And then, uh, wait, who is Alan Hale? Uh, I don't remember. Is he? I I think he might be Little John. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Ellen Hill is Little John. Oh, Melville Cooper is the sheriff of Nottingham. Um. Anyway. And the thing is, as great as the movie is, of all of those characters, maybe only Maid Marian actually has an arc at all. Sure. Like Robin Hood is the same guy from frame one. Yeah. He doesn't change. Yeah. It's only Maid Marian has the sort of like, I'm afraid of Robin Hood because I've been told I should be, Oh wait, turns out he's a nice guy. Oh wait, I'm in love with him. Mm -hmm. And then she actually has a lot of, uh, uh, quite a bit of agency in, in, in rescuing him. Uh, and then standing up to, to Prince John. Uh, and then he, of course he has to rescue her at the end. Um, uh, but uh, the movie, it just entirely holds your attention because you've got uh, a, a great cast. Oh, and then it's got Eugene Pallet uh, as Friar Tuck, who was who in uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And, okay. Yeah, just a very reliable character actor of the time. Um, yeah. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the great, uh, as, an, as an early version of an action movie, you know, mm. um, what do you what do you think is the first action movie? Oh, that's a good question. This I think this definitely uh is in the running for that, but I think there's Well, the General. I the think The General is up there. Uh, is maybe the first action movie to me, but there's probably yeah. other other stuff that I'm missing out on. Yeah, it's tough because I mean, when you think about it, so many westerns are actiony, <clears throat> yeah. but <laughs> But they, because they're identifiable first and foremost as westerns, like it's hard to think of, of them as pure action. Yeah, and I'd say but the general like, is similar in that regard. The Great Train Robbery is not an action movie, right? It's like a, I guess it's kind of it's not even really a heist movie. Yeah, it's just it's not a, that it's a robbery. One guy gets shot in yeah. the back. Although it's actually a very it's uh, disturbing. Yeah, it yeah. is because he stays in the frame the whole time. Yeah. Uh, all right, maybe that's next up on my rewatch list, uh, The Great Train Robbery. But yeah, uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood has uh, action in terms of fight choreography, but also mm-hmm. there's a whole lot of like climbing things and jumping things yeah. and then holding onto a rope and cutting the thing and the rope carries him up yeah. the, the gate. It's like, uh, yeah, it's a very action-packed and fun movie, very colorful. Um, great use of color. Yeah. Great use of color. I think the, I mean, the, the costumes and the locations look very, like, stagey and kind of cheap yeah. to me, you know? Um, but I kind of love that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a sucker for it. Like that inherent theatricality to it all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the big like fight between, um, um, Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone at the, at the end is on just this, like, um, it, this weird, like the staircase down to the dungeon. is just like, who built this room? It's just <laughs> yeah. like, why do you need this staircase? Yeah. It's a big empty room. <laughs> 
it's, with a big like half a staircase in it. It's like that Patton Oswalt bit where he's talking about how like uh, 80s metal videos, like they take place in a factory that just manufactures sparks. <laughs> it's like it's a room made solely for sword fighting. Yeah, exactly. Uh, anyway, I had a blast. Uh, it flew by. And then last night I had uh, what I'm going to call a religious experience. Watch out. Um, because I watched a for the first time in a long time and B for the first time in a movie theater. Okay. Stanley Kubrick's 2001, a space odyssey. Nice. Um, and I think if I like, if I were like you and I kept a top 10 list of all time, Mm -hmm. I would have to revise my top 10. Nice. I think it is one of the five best movies I've ever seen in my life. And I always, I always loved it. Um, but you know, I, uh, this is, I would say this is an argument for um, seeing movies in a theater, which I'm sometimes sure. I sometimes like, you know, I'm churlish and, about. And we <laughs> saw, in our in our sci-fi vis of a post time fut class, uh-huh. uh, we did watch it, but yeah, it was it was in a you know it was in a screening room. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely bigger than any TV. I yeah, had. yeah, but that's yeah, true. that's it's um, different though. And and that was also probably from DVD. This is a 70 millimeter. Nice. This is the new. I don't know if you've read about this. Mm-hmm. The Christopher Nolan supervised new what he's calling an unrestoration sort of yeah. no digital effects sort of like trying to make the movie in terms of color uh, look like it would have looked to audiences in 1968. Yeah. Um, and it's very cool. Um, yeah, definitely very cool looking. Um, but uh, an argument, I would say an argument against theater watching or the people who are in the movie theater. Sure. <laughs> um, like I was really happy there was a whole row of teenagers like to my left and okay. I'm like well this is cool like to be 16 or 17 and wa- you know want to go see this 50 year old movie um, I don't trust it uh, and mostly it was cool and the kid the one kid who was clearly like the one who organized the trip was obviously like a film buff but had never seen it before mm. but he was there, like because his, his uh, one of the girls in the group was like I don't want to sit this close to the screen and he was like no but this isn't digital projection it won't be as bright so I want to be closer to the screen like <laughs> it's insightful for a 17 year old don't you just want to hug him um, yeah but then I'll say even he uh, uh, got bored at exactly the same point my high school girlfriend got bored which is the stargate sequence yeah um because it's a long time of just color and sound to me it's beautiful and transfixing and transporting but it's also in terms of effects it was the effects weren't particularly impressive to me 20 years ago i'm sure to so to a 17 year old now they don't they they look they look kind of corny um i've come to appreciate them more over the years because i've I've contextualized more and seen more movies of the era. Yeah. Um, uh, and I've just sort of recalibrated what I want out of movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so they also showed it at the Academy on Monday. I didn't go cause I'm not a member, but my boss went and took his son who had never seen it before his high school age son. Um, and his son didn't, didn't care for the movie, yeah. but at, my boss was telling me, he was like, uh, afterwards I was telling him, I mentioned that, uh, I, um, read the book and his son was like that was a book because <laughs> there's like if you if you boil it on the story of 2001 yeah. it's like 40 45 pages maybe yeah. you could fit into a novel like it's uh it yeah there's not much story well like the, the last 60 pages like one just says like read with a checkered pattern <laughs> and no. yeah um i thought that i thought that was funny but um no, going back to going back to what I said before about how I've recalibrated what I expect from movies. Yeah, I think yeah. When I first saw it on VHS in my girlfriend's basement in high school, um, 
I was still in the sort of movies are a storytelling format. Sure. First and foremost frame of mind. Um, and I've come to realize how limiting it is to, to view all movies through that, that prism. Yeah. And now I like, I guess I recognize that it is slow objectively, but it yeah. doesn't feel slow to me because it's, um, the, the rhythm is there the whole time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, I think everybody, probably any film students born, you know, after 1975 that watched, uh, uh, 2001 probably had the same experience that we did. Like they probably watched it arguably too young because they heard it was great. You heard about it. This is an absolutely essential movie. So you watch it and you're just like, yeah, okay. This is, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. And the production designs are great. Yeah. I knew that. But at the same time, yawn. (laughs) And then you get older, you watch it again and you're like, okay, hang on now. Yeah. I was incorrect. And then I would say probably the third time you watch it at this point, you've seen enough things to kind of be okay with a non narrative. There's still a narrative, but it's, you know, it's like three narratives, uh, over the course of the film. Yeah. Um, and it becomes invigorating. And like at this point, uh, when I think of 2001, I think of something that is just like, I can't think of a, well, I can, but it's hard to think of a less compromising film. It is a director Mm -hmm. just operating on a whole other level. He is interested in what he wants to explore and nothing else. And I cannot tell you how proud I am of the more than one lesson listeners Uh that when we put out the poll, of the 50 best movies of all time, 2001, number one. All right. You know, like, and that speaks what was to the something. Battleship Retention listeners, number one. Citizen Kane. Okay. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no but, complaints um, there. But I do think it's interesting that, like, a an audience that consists, my, my MTOL audience is not solely Christian by any stretch of the imagination, but an audience that is thinking about these movies in the context of spirituality, because that's what the show is, that this is the movie that they pick as number one. And I think because like, like most great sci-fi, it's not purely sci, you know, it's, there's a lot of, a lot of metaphysical in there as well, like Solaris and stuff like that. And I think there's just, it gives you so much to think about. Uh, yeah. Uh, I also, another thing I reflected is like while watching, it was like, uh, this is not a horror movie, but it doesn't surprise me that this guy made a horror movie, uh, you know, 12 years later, because there's some real creepy, like un- oh, yeah. unsettling, unnerving shit in yeah. there, you know, from and a lot of it is in the sound design or the use of the, the that choral uh, yeah. music um, or the whole part where uh, what's his name? Um, not Dave, the other one, the one who dies in space, yeah. like his, that whole death and yeah. the aftermath of just his body out in space is like yeah. really unsettling. Uh, yeah. And it's like, it speaks to like, when you look at the whole of the film, you realize that the monolith is a good thing in if, like, which is, it seems to spur on progress and evolution and that sort of thing. And yet it is so terrifying. Yeah. Anytime it shows up. Yeah. Especially I mean, like the, the part on the moon when all, when it lets out that high pitched thing, like, yeah. we don't know until almost the very end of the movie that those guys survived. Yeah. You know what I mean? Until we actually see the video of, um, what's his name? 
uh, Haywood R. Floyd, right? <laughs> oh, jeez, I that's, don't know. That's the protagonist for the first half. Yes. Well, there's the Donna Man, and there's the yeah. prota- the Haywood Floyd part. Then there's the Dave and is it Paul? I don't Frank? know. Dave, like, how could you not? You know, Dave is the only one yeah. that matters at that point. Yeah. I also like seeing it uh, in a in a crowd. Um, got Hal got a lot of laughs, which he which he should. Sure. Like, there's something very funny about um, how calm and reasonable sounding how yeah. is after he's killed four fifths of the crew. Yeah. Um, uh, and then he's pl- like sort of, and yet when he's with his life, but not like emotionally, he's yeah. just like, I can assert assert with all confidence. I'm back on track or whatever. Yeah. Like, it's funny and upsetting and yeah, it's really, and cool. then when he's dying, yeah. seeing bicycle built for two, like yeah. it's really Daisy is the name of this. Daisy. Name. Pardon me. Yes. Why don't you go fuck yourself? <laughs> um, that's like a, um, uh, it's like the Pina Colada song. Yeah. Yeah. Officially well, called the, escape. Yeah, that's right. Escape. Yeah. Um, no, I was trying to think what's the who song. Um, it's not called teenage wasteland. It's, uh, Oh, uh, I don't actually know. Yeah. That's the only one. That's, that's what I would know it as. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay. Uh, we, so you're going to look that up. Uh, yeah. Am and I, good I will with, say one thing, okay. one demerit for, uh, watching things on, on film is with, there was a problem. They had to stop, uh, between the second to last and last reel for a while because there was a problem with the sound, uh, the sound suddenly cutting out and they had wow. to, uh, rethread the, the camera or reset the projector twice. Some people left and got, uh, vouchers, um, to see wow. uh, future movies. Um, I felt really bad for the theater manager because this was yeah. this was the you know they're showing it all week at the Arrow. Mm-hmm. Last night was the first night like this. Um, they they had not had this problem before. Baba O'Reilly is the oh yeah that Who song. Why wouldn't you uh, yeah. uh, move beyond that? Uh, anyway, so all right, uh, yeah, two thousand one, uh, maybe one of my top five favorite movies of all time. As it turns out, yeah, uh, if it's playing there all week, uh, maybe I'll go see it. I feel like, uh, it would be definitely beneficial. Yeah. Although it sounds like, uh, it's going to break a couple times. Well, I mean, no, cause now I was there. I was the test audience. Yeah. They probably got it right. figured out by now. Yes. Oh, they're back on track. <laughs> um, so, uh, okay. I rewatched Clint Eastwood's unforgiven. Oh, a film that is so intensely watchable and yet so very difficult at the same time. Um, it, it is brilliant. When's the last time you saw it? Oh, man. I mean, I was probably about the last time I saw 2001 or the yeah. first time I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey on VHS in high school. It is. I mean, certain some of those scenes have, have like really stuck out in, in the cultural mindset. But um, but when you watch it, like it is it is such a such a unique Western when you think of its structure, I think specifically of, um, Richard Harris, that he comes in as this character who really is, you know, that he's a bad person and that he's extremely capable of killing. Mm -hmm. And yet he's not the primary antagonist. In fact, he gets run out of town by the primary antagonist who is doing it as a function of the law and 
something that could be seen as undeniably a good thing, Mm -hmm. which is let's get these assassins out of my town. But in doing so winds up being intensely brutal on his own, uh, which is Gene Hackman's character. Uh, Gene Hackman, who I think rightfully won best supporting actor for that film. It is an effortless performance. Charming as hell as, as he could be while also being menacing. But there's also an inherent goodness to him. It's it is a fascinating character. Like I, Clint Eastwood, I think does a great job. Morgan Freeman is is really good. But to me, little Bill Daggett is such a complex character. A character that if you were to just look at this movie from a slight diff, slightly different angle, mm-hmm. if you were to watch this character twenty years before, mm-hmm. he's the hero. He is John Wayne, <laughs> and that's the thing is he is. He is the West. If he, I, I, this is very lofty, but he is the West, which is he's doing what he can the best way he knows how, failing to recognize just how monstrous it is. Um, but he also might not be the worst monster on screen, but he's in charge, mm-hmm. and that's enough. And so it really is just the complexity of that character and that, that, and that he is... At the core, along with Clint Eastwood, who's a character who just is kind of incompetent as he's gotten older, as he got away from doing terrible things, and then just eventually just gets gets back into it, like when things start going bad, and that we, the audience, having been trained for so long to be excited when Clint Eastwood picks up a gun, but then when this when you see it in this movie, you see him take a drink of whiskey pick up a gun and you're like, no, Mm. your dead wife would be so disappointed in you. (laughs) Um, like that. It really is. I mean, I recognize that, you know, Eastwood has, has definitely changed as a filmmaker in, in, in his politics or as a, as a person in his politics, but it never fails to fascinate me. What a complex director he was and what a sensitive director he was that he recognized the potential damage that his early career might have done, you know, whether it be Dirty Harry or The Man with No Name, whatever it is. Um, And he spent his life as a director trying to undercut that or at least explore it, you know. Uh, It reminds me of a a line from L.A. Confidential where Guy Pierce is wanting to look deeper into the case that made his career, and Russell Crowe's like... the night owl made you do you really want to tear that down and he says with a wrecking ball mm-hmm. and that's that very much i think is how clint eastwood approach approached his level of fame which is okay well i'm famous enough now that they'll let me direct and so now i'm going to actually do something with it so like between that and mystic river and grand torino um i think it's i think he's a, a fascinating director and i'm not sure if i'd say unforgiven is the movie that really kicked it off but it certainly is the one that like put him on the map as his career just going in a completely different direction, at least directorially. Um, and yeah, if you, if listeners, if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's one of the great Westerns. It's, it's a revisionist Western in a lot of ways and yet very true to the Western spirit. And David, you haven't seen it in a while. Check it out again. All right.